Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Mr. Harry Hay, are you now or have you ever been a communist? Mr. Chairman, I must decline to answer that question on the First and Fifth Amendments. Are you now a homosexual, or have you ever been associated with a homophile organization? In the Mattachine, we are seeking acceptance of the homosexual in society. And people had to come together in order to, to cooperate, in order to survive. You can often wind up in a very lonely and often dejected Situation. The communist trials for conspiracy are being held in Los Angeles. 
and I've been in the papers as a Marxist teacher and as a uh, one of the one of the people who really ought to be called in to be examined in the trial. The legal and moral sanctions are against them throughout their lives. We're being thrown out of the State Department. The problem of homosexuality was not our problem, but society's problem. I could be called in, and it, I, I didn't have no way of knowing what the FBI knew and didn't know. Homosexuality survives by proselytizing. Why are the laws in the book? They were adopted before we had any knowledge of the true fact. If we slip now, it could set everything back 20 or 30 years. Everybody said that gays would not fight back. Mattachine is a podcast dedicated to exploring the overlooked, forgotten, or often untold stories in gay history. I'm Devlin Camp. If you are joining us for the first time, this is our season finale. We suggest you pause here and begin with episode one to enjoy the full, serialized story of Mattachine. Harry Hay was closeted and married to a woman when paranoia swept through Washington, D.C. Hundreds of homosexuals were losing their jobs. And the reasoning? Homosexuals working in Washington could be blackmailed with their sexual secret by foreign governments for American federal secrets, thus leading to communist infiltration. Was anyone ever blackmailed? No. Harry Hay saw the fear spreading through the nation as a movement against queer people. He heard a call to action. Harry created a secret society to protect its queer community from a fearful and angry nation. Three years later, Harry Hay was ousted from his secret society by homosexual members who feared the angry nation and believed they would best be protected by assimilating with the nation, dressing like them, modeling their relationships heteronormatively, and following a similar moral and political code. Harry Hay is left on his own, completely disconnected from Mattachine and nearly impossible to be contacted by his former friends who founded the society with him. It's quite possible that they don't know Harry Hay has been contacted by Congress and a United States Marshal with a statement. You are hereby commanded to summon Harry Hay, 920 North La Cienega Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, to be and appear before the Committee on Un-American Activities. Harry is, of course, worried about his ties with the Communist Party, but he disconnected himself from the party five years ago. What really worries him is the organization for which he left the Communist Party, the Mattachine Society, and whether HUAC's questioning will lead the federal government to discover that Mattachine was founded by former communists, which would lead the federal government to take serious action against the growing homosexual movement because of Harry Hayes' communist ties. As far as he knows, the FBI and HUAC have not connected him with Mattachine. But FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover does have Harry in the security index for former connections to the Communist Party, And also, Hoover is swift in taking action against homosexuals, all subversive criminals in his eyes. As you might recall from our episode 4, The Lavender Scare, prior to the scare, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover used his bureau to incite fear of the homosexual in the nation. Large-scale sex crime panics found someone to blame. The sexually strange, the queer, were an easy group to pen crimes on, largely because that group was, essentially, invisible. It could be anybody. The fear became so potent that rumors even began to spread into the FBI. Rumors about Hoover and his number two man, Associate Director Clyde Tolson. We'll never know if they had a sexual relationship. But there is no evidence proving them as hetero or asexual. 
What we do know, they dine together often, Hoover lives with his mother until her death when he's 43, he wills most of his estate to Tolson, and they will be buried near each other in the Congressional Cemetery. There are also photos Hoover took of Tolson sleeping. If anyone ever suggests Hoover is homosexual, he sends FBI agents to intimidate them, telling them to put up or shut up. Hoover likes to say that to his enemies, put up or shut up. And sometimes he makes people who comment on his sexuality sign a statement denying their claim, even going so far as to pressure a woman who made a comment about his sexuality to her bridge club in Cleveland. She was forced to apologize. Director Hoover is not going to let rumors about him spread and affect his power. July 26th, 1955. That's when Harry Hay is up for removal from the FBI security index. He's been inactive with the Communist Party for five years, but in the decade prior, an FBI informant was sent to infiltrate the Communist Party and bring back information. And just before July 26th, 1955, just before the date Harry's name is to be removed from the index, that informant delivers. He publicly testifies that one of his teachers in his Marxism classes was Harry Hay, a music teacher who advocated an overhaul of the U.S. election system. It was in those music classes where Harry Hay taught his students about the French Mattachine, masked bachelors, fools who spoke out against oppression. While his removal from the Bureau's index is pending for less than a month away, Harry Hay is called to testify. Several other people are subpoenaed, and everyone is lawyering up. Harry doesn't want to get a lawyer someone else is using, worrying he might mark someone else on trial, because he knows he isn't just going to be asked about communism, and the question of his sexuality will leave a stigma with his lawyer that could affect their other clients that day. He seeks out his own attorney. He's known a lawyer, John McTurnan, for quite a while, but John says, we're not going to condone queers, you know. So Harry asks whom John suggests he might go see instead. Well, that's not my business, he says. Go find your own lawyer. Harry has six weeks to find a lawyer and prepare himself. While everyone else is rehearsing their statements, Harry is turned away by every lawyer he meets, or he's passed off to someone else who will also turn him away. Near the end of the fifth week, he meets Frank Pastana. Frank typically represents racial minorities in L.A. He tells Harry, This is one of the greatest studies in courage I've ever run into. Of course I'll help you. They rehearse Saturday to Thursday with every question the committee can possibly throw at Harry. Mr. Harry Hay, do you uphold contact with sexual deviance? Mr. Chairman, it appears to me that you are attempting to intrude upon areas of personal consciousness and conceptual opinions, an area in which the Supreme Court has ruled you have not the right to investigate. Are you now a homosexual? Or have you ever been associated with a homophile organization? Mr. Chairman, I'd be obliged if you would refresh my memory by reading the section out of the act under which the committee operates, which empowers you, reluctantly of course, to investigate the private perceptions, inclinations, and our associations of citizens in regard to non-political intimacies. If pressed about his association with any homosexuals, he has a lengthy answer prepared to back up an argument that everyone is associated with homosexuals, whether they know it or not. Harry is slated to testify on Thursday, but sits through testimonies until taking the stand Saturday, July 22nd, 1955. He's nervous. Gabby is all hell in his words. He believes the committee really thinks they're going to get some info out of him. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. I do. 
Thank you. Let the record show that the committee reconvenes after a short recess and that a legal quorum of the committee is here. Mr. Scherer of Ohio, Mr. Motor of Missouri, and Mr. Doyle of California. Will you state your name, please, sir? My name is Harry Hay. It is noted that you are accompanied by counsel. Will counsel please identify himself? Frank Pestana. P-E-S-T-A-N-A. When and where were you born, Mr. Hay? April 7, 1912, in Worthing, England. When did you first arrive in this country? My father and mother were American citizens at the time of my birth, and the family returned to the United States at the end of 1916. Therefore, you are an American citizen? Yes, sir. Do you now reside in Los Angeles? We came here to Los Angeles in 1916, and we have been here ever since. What is your occupation, please, sir? I am a production control engineer. In what industry? We make burners and boilers for the basic industry. Will you tell this committee, please, what your formal educational training has been? Yes. I would say that in the beginning, the position of production control engineer up until about 1947 or 1948 did not have regular university training, so that my education for that is partly formal and partly applicatory in the field. I will do the best I can in that field. Six years of grade school, three years of junior high school. Because I was graduated from high school before I was 14, I went through three years and dropped back, took two additional years of electives, so I have five years of high school, two years at Stanford. Financial difficulties made it impossible for me to continue, so that in that preparation for the, that type of work I do now, I had approximately two years of historic research, one year of record research, one year in market analysis, one year in actual practice as a foundryman, one year in architectural. I didn't mean for you to go into the detail of stating your curriculum. I suggested these things because to speak of yourself as a production control engineer without a degree sometimes seems a little strange. Would you like for me to stop now? <laughs> if you have covered in a general way, that is sufficient. If not, I don't want to limit you. I would simply want to mention three years as a small tool analyst and material planning and two years as production planning. Have you also engaged in the profession of teaching in addition to the other occupation which you mentioned? The witness confers with his counsel. Mr. Chairman, I must decline to answer that question on the First and Fifth Amendment. Have you had any training in music? The witness confers with his counsel. I decline to answer the question on the First and Fifth Amendments. Investigation by the committee discloses that under the schedule of classes for the winter of 1950 at the California Labor School, you were an instructor of a class in music and the people struggle through the centuries. Did you actually teach such a course in the California Labor School? The witness confers with his counsel. Mr. Chairman, I am compelled to answer by declining to answer your question for the reason of the First and Fifth Amendments. Do you know whether the Communist Party in Los Angeles, on a county level, selected those who were to teach in the California Labor School? I beg your pardon. Is that the whole question? <laughs> yes. Would you repeat it? Yes, I'll try to repeat it. Do you know whether or not the Communist Party in Los Angeles, on a county level, selected those who were to teach in the California Labor School? I decline to answer that for the reasons previously stated. Were you given instructions by the Communist Party to conduct classes on any occasion? I decline for the same reason, sir. Mr. Werb, who appeared as a witness yesterday and also this morning, stated that you had been sent by the educational director of the Communist Party in Los Angeles to the Hawthorne Club of the Communist Party to give a course of instruction. Was that an accurate statement by him? Mr. Chairman, you are asking me to give opinions, I believe, in this case. 
I wish to state that I have neither opinions nor recollections to give to stool pigeons and their buddies on this committee. <laughs> That's when the shit hit the fan, Harry will later recall. Mr. Tavener stands up, holding the edge of the oak desk, and accidentally pushes it over. The courtroom crowd can't hold back their giggles. Let's put the question in a different form. Were you instructed by the educational director of the Communist Party to conduct classes in the Hawthorne Group of the Communist Party? I declined to answer that based upon the First and Fifth Amendments. You called Mr. Werub a stool pigeon. Is anything he said about you untrue? The witness confers with his counsel. I declined to answer based upon the First and Fifth Amendments. Harry will later recall, They couldn't make me repeat it, and the poor little closet queen who was transcribing couldn't find it in the reams of paper ribbon jumbled up on the floor around him. It certainly comes with ill grace to tag a man like Mr. Werub as you have, and then refuse to say whether what he said about you was untrue or not. Mr. Chairman, this is your opinion. You may keep it. It certainly is, and it is opinion founded on a little testimony and a little experience on this committee. Mr. Chairman, some of the altercations that went on with the last witness, I might suggest a question in that direction. May I have that statement? What do you say, please? In effect, Mr. Chairman, what I said a moment ago was that some of the altercations concerning the last witness in this chair might suggest a difference of opinion on the matter. Altercation? I wasn't aware that there was any altercation with the last witness. I think I know what he means. Mr. Hay, did you in January or February of 1947 conduct a Marxist school in Los Angeles? I declined to answer that question based upon the First and Fifth Amendments. Were you a member of the Communist Party in 1947? I declined for the same reason, sir. Are you now a member of the Communist Party? No. Were you a member of the Communist Party in 1950? The witness confers with his counsel. I declined to state for the First and Fifth Amendments, sir. Were you a member of the Communist Party in 1954? I declined to state on the First and Fifth Amendments. Were you a member of the Communist Party yesterday? I declined to state on the First and Fifth Amendments. Was it just on Saturdays that you were not a member of the Communist Party? The witness confers with counsel. I declined to answer that, Mr. Chairman, on the First and Fifth Amendments. Were you a member of the Communist Party this morning when you entered this hearing room? The witness confers with his counsel. I declined to state on the First and Fifth Amendments. Is it a plan of the Communist Party that when a Communist Party member is called to testify before this committee that he is to deny membership for the period of time he is on the witness stand? The witness confers with his counsel. On the advice of counsel, I decline to answer that one on the First and Fifth Amendments. I have no further questions. Any questions? No questions. No questions. No questions. Thank you very much. Whereupon the witness is excused. Harry's fingers are so locked up, he needs the bailiff to help him loosen them in order to sign himself out. He can barely hold the pen. And he realizes the committee didn't ask him about the Mattachine. The information they have on him is five years old. Harry will later tell historian Jonathan Katz he's disappointed they didn't ask. I was going to handle it on the basis that gay is proud, he'll say. He believes they didn't press him further because he had exuded what he calls a gay consciousness. They were uncomfortable with his demeanor, and they needed to maintain order with all of the laughter. Though difficult to explain, certainly many of our queer listeners understand this defense mechanism. But Harry's attorney is perplexed over the stool pigeon joke. My God, I can't get you out of this one. I just hope to God they don't find the transcript. Of course, we just performed the transcript for you. It exists. And it lands on Director Hoover's desk shortly after the hearing. As the document makes its way through the FBI, an agent apparently notices a mix-up in the dates that informer reported on Harry. As of early 1950, it says... That is still contact with the Communist Party within the last five years, the agent notices. So a form is filed, and Harry Hay is listed on the security index 
once again. One magazine is printed in the basement of Dale Jennings's sister, Elaine. The small operation that she and her husband call Abbey Lithographers prints about 5,000 copies of each issue and then loads them up for distribution. While one incorporated awaits an injunction against the postmaster for seizing and impounding the October 54 issue on the grounds that it's obscene, they are mailing small, discreet amounts of the issue at a time and driving around the city of Los Angeles, slipping issues into subscribers' mailboxes themselves. As well as they can, the FBI continues to collect issues of one magazine. They file them all in the Sex Deviates file, which lives in the Crime Records Division of the Bureau. They put these magazines alongside the Mattachine file and a transcript of Paul Coates' confidential file talk show episode, Homosexuals and the Problem They Present, discussed in our episode last week. On January 26, 1956, Unit Chief Milton Jones from the Crime Records Division forwards a memo to his superior. He has anonymously received an issue of one magazine from two months ago, the November 55 issue. The memo Chief Jones writes to his boss describes an essay in one magazine titled, How Much Do We Know About the Homosexual Male? Homosexuals have existed in all parts of the world, among all peoples and all cultures, since man's emergence into the watered valleys of our young planet. The writer describes the homosexual community divided into three groups, all of which are in revolt against society, which concerns Unit Chief Jones. The writer describes the revolutionaries, men swishing down Hollywood Boulevard. They have rejected society because society has rejected them. They can also be found among the ranks of social workers, the labor leaders, the left-wing political or religious organizations. The writer goes on to describe the next group, the liberals, essentially the artists and day-job homosexuals, the actors, dancers, psychiatrists, lawyers, and the man of understanding who will lead us into a new era, the writer says. And then there are the Tories. The Tories are the elegant ones who have decided to express their social hostility by being more correct than the foremost representatives of the dominant and dominating culture. They work for Time Magazine or The New Yorker. They are the diplomatic service. They occupy key positions with oil companies or the FBI. It's true. But perhaps most of them sell men's accessories in the campus shops of large department stores and ostentatiously vote Republican. The one magazine issue is sent up the chain, and Jones's superior decides that this magazine should not be dignified with a response. He sends the memo, which you can read on our social media or website at Mattachine Files or MattachinePod.com, respectively. He sends this memo to his superiors. Recommendation that no reply be made to this magazine. The memo lands on the desk of Hoover's number two man, whom Hoover dines with almost daily, whom Hoover has taken photos of sleeping, Associate Director Clyde Tolson. Tolson reads the essay. The Tories are the elegant ones who have decided to express their social hostility. They occupy key positions with oil companies or the FBI. It's true. And this time it is Tolson who writes on the memo, I think we should take this crowd on and make them put up or shut up. Quoting Director Hoover's phrase, he sends the memo up to Hoover, who draws a line from Tolson's statement and adds, I concur. The Bureau begins their investigation with the byline of the essay by David L. Freeman. They don't know that this is a pseudonym, an alias for former Mattachine founder Chuck Rowland. Director Hoover sends an airtel, the highest priority message, to the L.A. field office, ordering them to have two mature and experienced agents contact Freeman in the immediate future and tell him the Bureau will not countenance such baseless charges appearing in this magazine and for him to either put up or shut up. Hoover wants it done within a week. 
the LA field office struggles to figure out who David Freeman is, searching through their records of One Incorporated and the Mattachine Society. They find no one. By the end of January 56, in their search for Freeman, two agents show up at the offices of One Inc. on 232 South Hill Street, downtown Los Angeles. They enter room 326 and find a man named William Lambert, better known to us as Dorleg, whom we met in past episodes. Dor is now One Incorporated's business manager. The agents ask him who he is. He declines to answer. The agents ask for David Freeman. Dor says he doesn't know anything about him, and even if he did, he wouldn't be authorized to share information about One employees. The agents leave, returning two days later to find Dor right where they left him. They show Dor their identification as requested, and Dor takes one of the agent's credentials, beginning to write down the name. One of the agents begins questioning. Might you be William Lambert? I might and I might not. Are you the editor of One Magazine? Do you know anything about this article? How much do we know about the homosexual male or its author, David L. Freeman? I know you could speak to our attorney, Eric Julber. Do you have any information that the FBI employs a homosexual or a sexual deviant? Do you have information that there are none? The FBI will not tolerate any such baseless statement in this or any other publication. That's an interesting statement. The agents turn to walk out. By the way, gentlemen, would you have any objection if this interview had been taped? They say they have no objection. In the reports, they note the cheap offices and the unlikelihood that they were being taped. However, given the detailed reporting on Doris' comment, it's evident that they are a bit worried. After all, it isn't typical for someone confronted by FBI agents for comments on an agent's or Hoover's sexuality to fight back like that. The Bureau believes this guy, William Lambert, who we know as Dorleg, they believe he is likely the editor or author of the essay. Chief Jones in the Crime Records Division doesn't think they should persist, worrying they might embarrass the Bureau. Clyde Tolson disagrees again. He says, I think we should open an investigation on Julber, one magazine's lawyer, and also get a line on Lambert. They're stuck for a long time trying to figure out William Lambert's other identity, likely hoping to connect him with the David Freeman name. But they still have no suspicion of Chuck Rowland. The FBI investigates one's business and their funding. And here's the thing. As they look into the organization and all of its employees listed on the magazine's masthead, agents collect their information in the Crime Records Division, effectively making this case part of the sex deviates file. They soon interview post office officials in order to catch one magazine on obscenity laws for mailing lewd content. And they find that a case is already open on the subject. And it seems the FBI has found their way in. As discussed last week, Los Angeles Postmaster Otto Olison deemed the October 1954 issue of One Magazine obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy. Under the Comstock Law, One Magazine was deemed unmailable, and the issue was impounded. Homosexual rights have not come very far since Henry Gerber's firing in 1925 for conduct unbecoming a postal worker. The United States Postal Service tells One Incorporated to show cause why the publication should not be declared non-mailable. So they do. One files an injunction with the federal district court in L.A. against the postmaster. When the FBI gets in contact with the postmaster, Olison, he agrees with the FBI that he will review the next issue of one that he can get his hands on in order to try and stop the magazine overall. The case will soon take the small magazine 
all the way to the Supreme Court and will affect all gay publications forward. One's lawyer, Eric Julber, submits an article that the post office's claim lacks merit. The magazine has even previously stated that they are not publishing sexual material. One is concerned with populations rather than pairs, they had said. Both sides request a summary judgment. The district judge Thurman Clark rules in favor of the post office. The suggestion advanced that homosexuals should be recognized as a segment of our people and be accorded special privilege as a class is rejected. Julberg goes up the next step and appeals the decision with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. While Julber and Juan wait, the FBI continues their hunt for Lambert and Freeman. One magazine hasn't applied for a new second-class mailing permit, so the FBI assumes they're still mailing the issues just in small amounts and likely driving around the city distributing the issues in mailboxes. When word comes down that Julber is appealing the district judge's ruling in favor of the post office, the Bureau sends one's November and December 1955 issues to the Department of Justice for an opinion relative to its obscene nature. If the DOJ determines the issue is obscene, the FBI will track down the magazine's lawyer, Julber, about the slanderous statements about the FBI, and they will tell him to put up or shut up. The Bureau is even trying to figure out if Julber is homosexual. He isn't, they determine. Oh no, he's alright. Their source confirms. They're on the phone with Abby Lithographers, the printers of One Magazine. Dale Jennings' sister Elaine and her husband James in their basement. Though it can't be said for sure, it's likely Jennings' brother-in-law who answers the phone. The FBI agent, using a pseudonym, is calling for a fake reason in order to attain information from James. It's called a pretext call, and it's how the FBI gathers information on several people, including Harry Hay. This time, the FBI manages to confirm that Abby Lithographers prints one magazine and holds most of the back copies. James, the printer, later tells the agent on another call, this time knowing he's speaking to an FBI agent, that he has asked a man at the magazine named William Lambert, who also goes by the name Dorleg, about times when the magazine might be viewed as obscene and improper for him to print. Dor had assured James, the printer, that the lawyer Julber had gone over the issues. This confirms Dorleg's true identity for the FBI, William Lambert. The printer, James, probably nervous, tells the agent that he is anxious to cooperate with the Bureau in any manner. Perhaps he intends to assure the FBI that what he printed and secretly what his brother-in-law wrote is legal. James and the FBI keep their relationship confidential and he sends them the October, November, and December 1955 issues to complete their collection, along with confirming that he's printed 5,000 copies of the upcoming January 1956 issue. The Los Angeles special agent in charge reports back to Director Hoover that they have collected nearly every issue of one to review. They are even determined to charge the magazine with violating federal laws of international transportation of obscene materials. Somehow, issues have surfaced in Copenhagen. Efforts to identify David L. Freeman have been unsuccessful to date. But knowing Dorleg's identity, the Bureau obsessively tails him. They go to his new address near Venice and La Brea, take photos, record his license plate number, and observe that he's living there with a person of color. But you can imagine what term they used instead. They discover Dor's history of leaving addresses blank for post office boxes and using fake addresses to register to vote. The L.A. field office coordinates with offices in Detroit and Portland in order to find Dor's entire history 
including, of course, an arrest for having oral sex with his then-boyfriend. By March 1956, the New York field office collects two copies of a magazine called The Mattachine Review and sends them to FBI headquarters for investigation. By then, one magazine has a new editor. She's listed on the masthead as Ann Carl Reed, though her true name is Irma Wolf. The FBI sends agents to interview her, and she accepts the questioning. They speak to her in her office at One Inc. for an hour and a half. Wolf explained that One's members are advised against speaking with FBI agents, but she also gives them some information they are seeking. She tells them that David L. Freeman is Chuck Rowland, and that he did in fact write the 1955 essay accusing the FBI of employing homosexuals. She explains that Rowland was expelled from the Communist Party, and that because he couldn't agree with many One magazine staff members, especially about that essay in particular, he's resigned from One. Wolf is clearing the magazine's reputation with the FBI. She shows them that they are under new management, hers. Wolf gives the Bureau Chuck's address and a place of work, along with the real names of other people on the masthead. While the FBI and One Magazine continue to wait for the results of Julber's appeal, the appeal against the district judge's ruling in favor of the post office, Hoover instructs for no one to interview Chuck Rowland. The assistant attorney general is in touch with Hoover about the two issues of One Magazine the Bureau had sent to the Department of Justice. Those might be prosecutable as obscene, they say, pending Julber's appeal. And now, they all wait. The case is placed on pending inactive status. Director Hoover orders the L.A. field office to follow the appeal closely, while the Bureau continues to collect information on the homosexual movement. About a year later, February 1957, three judges on a panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uphold the ruling in favor of the Postmaster unanimously, stating the magazine has a primary purpose of exciting lust, lewd, and lascivious thought and sensual desires in the minds of persons reading it. One magazine persists. Julber files a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court on June 13, 1957. The court delays the decision to hear the appeal until a case for two nudist magazines is heard. The cases are apparently similar enough that they are all to be heard together, but the court never does hear them. Instead, on January 13, 1958, the Supreme Court accepts the case and votes to reverse the Ninth Circuit. One Inc. v. Olison is the first ruling in the Supreme Court dealing with homosexuality, and it is in favor of their publication. While the government is still encouraging a witch hunt on homosexuals, the Supreme Court now allows gay publications to be mailed. The community can continue to flourish legally, though that doesn't mean there won't be challenges ahead. In their next issue, One Magazine announces, For the first time in American publishing history, a decision binding on every court now stands, affirming, in effect, it is in no way proper to describe a love affair between two homosexuals as constituting obscenity. This will not stop J. Edgar Hoover and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Because of this ruling, the movement thrives in the late 1950s and early 60s, and the Bureau will only crack down harder. And also because of this ruling, Chuck Rowland is never made to put up or shut up. He'll definitely never shut up. He starts the Crusaders, a gay youth group that meets at the First Universalist Church where the early Mattachine conventions were held. Working with One, Inc., Chuck starts a guidance center of gay counselors and provides job placement and vocational counseling. Also with One, he leads the development of a much-requested group for religious counseling, which later becomes the Church of One Brotherhood. 
Like the magazine, it is also named after the Thomas Carlyle quote, a mystic bond of brotherhood makes all men one. Chuck declines to run the church, likely believing that a church is a means toward respectability from greater society. He may have also created the church as a First Amendment shield to work behind. In any case, he'll soon after receive his own resignation letter from one which he did not write. Chuck will struggle with addiction, possible FBI blacklisting, a failed business, debt, and the suicide of his friend, former lover, and Mattachine co-founder, Bob Hull. Chuck will return to the Midwest to teach theater, and upon coming back to Los Angeles in 1982, Chuck Rowland, Jim Kepner, and former Mattachine member Martin Block will found Celebration Theater. It'll be billed as the only theater in Los Angeles dedicated exclusively to productions of gay and lesbian plays. Jim Kepner will host the debut in his storefront for the National Gay Archives in Hollywood, which will later merge with One Incorporated's archives. Celebration Theater will continue to run in Los Angeles through 2018 and beyond, recently putting up two plays starring Drew Drogi, a campy production of Die, Mommy, Die, and now playing off-Broadway, Bright Colors and Bold Patterns, a play about gay marriage and the assimilation of the gay minority. Sound familiar? Chuck Rowland died in December 1990 of prostate cancer. After Dor Legg pressures Dale Jennings out of his job editing One magazine, Dale goes on to write and publish the books The Ronin, The Sinking of the Sarah Diamond, and The Cowboys. He also writes the film treatment for The Cowboys, which he sells to Warner Brothers. Of course, the gay subtext is challenged before it's made into a movie starring John Wayne, which you can still catch on TV. Yet another little reminder that there were gay cowboys. Dale will later reconnect with Don Slater, who also left One and started the Homosexual Information Center in L.A., Dale gives all of his work, about 125 unpublished novels, scripts, treatments, critiques, and his personal library to the HIC, now housed at California State University. Dale continued to write until his death from respiratory failure in May 2000. Despite all of Harry Hayes' work creating, running, and handing off the Mattachine, his appearance in the Security Index, and his testimony for HUAC while the FBI had reopened an intense investigation of the Mattachine Society, Director Hoover never connected Harry Hay with the gay rights movement. There is no mention of Mattachine in Harry Hay's file, nor any mention of Harry Hay in the Mattachine file, except for a single mention of his mother's name, Mrs. Henry Hay, on a Mattachine letter sent to the FBI by an informant. And because Harry had been out of the Mattachine for a few years by the time the FBI began their second investigation, few members of the organization really knew who he was, so the FBI didn't put together that Harry Hay started the Mattachine movement. Harry remains out of the movement for several years. He opens a millinery shop in L.A. with his lover, and will later spend years traveling the country to study homosexuality and other cultures. He'll get back into the movement, in his own way, of course, Harry publishes an article in One Magazine in 1963, he starts the Circle of Loving Companions, speaks on the Council on Religion and the Homosexual, and on the Committee to Fight the Exclusion of Homosexuals from the Armed Forces, and he speaks for the Southern California Gay Liberation Front, and at the 20th Anniversary Celebration at Stonewall, and for the Committee for Traditional Indian Land and Life. And for the next big chapter of his legacy, he starts the sexual revolution group The Radical Fairies. The fairies are an alternative to the assimilationist side of the queer movement, which begins as a group gathering in Arizona to redefine queer consciousness through spirituality. Harry studies the culture of two-spirit. He challenges heteronormative assumptions in queer relationships through his writing and his work with the radical fairies, which he founded with his longtime lover John Burnside, the inventor of the telescope, a type of kaleidoscope. Harry obsessively researches Marxist history and the history of social boundaries that created queer identities in order for him to better understand the social roles queer people can fill now and in the future. 
As I connect all the stories I find in our history, I understand Harry's passion for our culture. Harry tried to convince the Mattachine that there was a place in the world for queer people to serve a greater purpose than assimilating. He proved that to be true with the radical fairies, which still exist today. His ideals of radicalism and embracing the deconstruction of gender were not brand new, and they have been reiterated by many leaders following him, including another well-known name in our culture, RuPaul. In 2011, Ru told an interviewer, That's what drag is. In fact, throughout the ages, the shaman, the witch doctor, the court jester, is the drag. It represents the duality of the material world and the fact that this is all illusion. It's not to be taken seriously. After Mattachine and Huac, Harry stops wearing quote-unquote hetero outfits. He puts on jewelry, pearls, skirts, and other flowing clothing. He says, I never again want to be mistaken for a hetero. Harry died of lung cancer in October 2002. The study of history is never wasted. It's preparation for the work ahead. My friend Albert William sent that to me on November 9th, 2016, as I was researching Mattachine. I sat at a long table at the One Archives in Los Angeles, opening countless manila envelopes, laughing at hilarious drawings, even sitting in awe at my Indiana hometown's Mattachine documents, and reading transcripts from Mattachine's Constitutional Convention. And I know how this convention will end before I'm finished reading it, because we are a product of it, and other events like it. You heard how it ended in our episode 7. The stigma against men who swish will prevail. Much of our community will assimilate. Despite the Mattachine chapter in my hometown, I will spend most of my time out of the closet fighting my femininity. While I was initially drawn to this research out of curiosity, and became driven to continue by the 2016 election, I realized by the end of it that the work ahead is not just against a presidential administration, but also within myself. We spend most of our time focusing on issues we're experiencing in the present, which is obviously important. We talk about government-supported suppression, gay marriage, intersectionality, masculinity, and the gender binary. But sometimes these issues are made clearer to us when we read the same problems discussed in our often untold history. So I'm grateful that you've joined us for these 10 episodes. Harry's story, like many others, has been largely overlooked in our community. If rights and liberation in our history are discussed in the queer community at all, they're generally related back to the Stonewall Riots of 1969. That riot is a landmark in our history. A landmark, not a destination. Countless stories lead up to Stonewall, and countless stories follow. Stonewall wouldn't have happened without the politics and activism of the 50s and 60s leading the community there, like Harry Hay. But were those riots at Stonewall led by homosexual white men? Absolutely not. That riot, which catalyzed the queer rights movement as we know it today, was a bar riot led by trans women of color, not homosexual white men. While Harry Hayes' actions, his writing of the call, his establishment of a movement beginning with two men in a diner, and later five men huddled in the bushes dreaming of amending the Constitution, his efforts to declare homosexual femme men as ethical, while these actions were an essential piece of the movement's beginning and simultaneously were ahead of their time, and whether or not he was ousted from his own society in a dramatic fashion— all of that said, Harry could not have and did not lead this movement to Stonewall on his own. Mattachine was created by and mostly for men, particularly only homosexual men, particularly homosexual cisgender white men. But homosexual cis white men were not the only quote-unquote secret minority living among the cishets overlooked by society. 
the white homosexual movement will charge forward from the 1950s, organized under names like Mattachine and One, with the power of their press to spread their message and cultivate our culture, gay men will continue to rise up and make sure the heterosexual people among them see them. But others shout out for liberation, too. Harry Hay once said, We are people who have been thrown up generation after generation throughout the millennia by the forces of natural selection, and through that, we are able to act as a mirror to see certain things that the straights can't possibly see. He said that a long time ago, when much of our community was still learning. We now know that this idea applies to many kinds of queerness. Queer perception is difficult to grasp in a hetero and cisnormative society. It's unique by definition. It's often difficult to express the queer experience, but frankly, it's far more interesting than not being queer. But anyway, seeing queerness in the history books makes those hard parts in the present easier to see clearly. And maybe hindsight isn't 2020 because many of the problems we confronted over these 10 episodes haven't been solved. Not in our government, not in our community, not in ourselves. But we make steps towards solving them when we understand where our battles began and how they've been fought and how we can improve upon those fights. We've come a long way since Henry Gerber in 1924 and the many centuries before him. But we couldn't have come this far without the steps our ancestors took, and the steps our ancestors took following the splintering of the Mattachine Society. But we'll put a pin in that until next season. When we return from a short break, we'll explore the rise of the lesbian movement. We'll journey into San Franciscan bar raids, we'll follow transgender leaders, and we'll uncover conflicts of interest breaking down the queer community. We'll find Hal Call pushing his magazine in gay bars and the sexual awakening of the Mattachine, while picket signs are made and Washington wages war on new queer leaders, all before the Stonewall Riots of 1969. When we return, we explore the revolt of the homosexual and the radical rise of their fellow minorities. Soon, on Mattachine. Stay tuned. Sometimes I put fun little bonuses after the credits. Mattachine was created and hosted by me, Devlin Camp. Thank you so much for following the show for 10 episodes. I'm extremely grateful and happy that there are other people out there who love queer history as much as I do. Since you've enjoyed the show, now is a great time to share it with your friends, whether they're gay, straight, asexual, or anywhere on the Kinsey scale. And if you've enjoyed this season, please rate and or review us on iTunes. It really helps the show move up in the ranks and find more listeners. It's fast and easy. Click the link in our show notes. And while we're away, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for fun updates and photos. Our handle for everything is Mattachine Files. Thank you to our editorial advisor, Paul DeCicio, for all of his encouragement and wise advice over the past two years. And of course, thanks to Albert Williams for encouraging me to study our history. Voice actors for this episode were Steve Camp as Harry Hay, Evan Camp as Mr. Taverner, Matt Camp as Mr. Doyle. The HUAC trial is mostly just my family fighting. Nathan Cooper as Chuck Rowland, Sal Gatto as Doorleg, Mike Kanish as the FBI agent and James the Printer, John Roth as Mr. Scherer, Albert Williams as Frank Pastana, and special appearances by Jen Freitag and Anne-Marie Friedo. You can find the sources for the show on our website, mattachinepod.com, along with lots of additional information. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on the website, too. That's mattachinepod.com. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo and audio clips of Harry Hay are courtesy of One Archives at the USC Libraries. Audio clips from The Rejected, the first American documentary on homosexuality, are licensed by 13 Productions and WNET. You can watch The Rejected online. It's posted on our Facebook page. The documentary includes Hal Call and other Mattachine members. The music for this episode was the songs Phantasm, Invariance, Floating Cities, 
Groove Grove, Cool Vibes, On the Cool Side, Night on the Docks, and The Complex, all by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. The permissions, licenses, and equipment for this show certainly add up. If you'd like to contribute to the production of this show, you can check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash files and contribute as little as $1 per episode. Donors get private perks like photos to the research process, PDF transcripts of episodes, and other bonuses. If you're a school teacher, contact me on mattachinepod.com to receive those transcripts of every episode, including our resources, free of charge. Feel free to teach your students all the queer history that you can. Thank you so much for listening. If you have ideas, suggestions, or moments in pre-Stonewall queer history you want to hear included in this show, contact me at mattachinepod.com. Send me your stories, book titles, documentaries, anything you like. There's so much to research. As Harry Hay predicted in his 1951 Mattachine meeting notes, Some glad day there shall be a body of knowledge which would show that homosexuals have much in common. Hello? Hi, Phyllis. This is Rose. Hi, Rose. Listen, we're starting a group. There's six of us. Would you two like to be part of a group of women like us?